You know, then there was the gal who had the headband on and the wristbands ready to go in and challenge any comer, right? You, you know that, right? And then there was the captains, right? Sometimes I wonder if God were a captain, what kind of person would he pick to play a pickup basketball game? You know, the, the first captain would go out there and pick the, the best person for their team, whatever it is, who knows, the, maybe it was their close friend or maybe it was the best athlete or whatever it was. I, I got some pretty crazy stories of my version of that thing playing out. But I can tell you, I wonder if God, when it was time for him to pick, if he would say, he'd look at the, the whole list of people standing up in front of him that he needed to pick for his pickup team. It is almost like God sometimes has this moment where he just like loses his mind. And God's like, you know, there, there's eight of you there I can pick from, but you know what I pick? It's almost like God says, I want to pick that kid that's playing out there in the sandbox that's just building sandcastles and looking at daisies. It's like God just picks the person that's so far out. You know, you don't agree with me, do you? Come on. I'm telling you, right? I mean, so look at, look at some of the places in the Bible that God chose people. It's always amazing to me. You know, God chose Gideon. Remember Gideon in the Bible? The book of Judges? Gideon was this guy who an angel shows up and says to him, Gideon, mighty warrior. All the while, Gideon was hiding from the Midianite army uh, treading out grain in a wine press, no less. Translation, hiding from the bad guys, right? God calls him mighty warrior, right? And I think to me, like, okay, God, pick somebody who's like looking like a warrior. <laughs> somebody who's at least acting like it, right? God chose, uh, uh, you remember Rahab, the, the one, the Rahab the prostitute. She was the one who hid the spies that, that were going into to Jericho. And sometimes I wonder, like, God, couldn't you have picked like anybody else? Like, like he just picked someone who was, seems to be the least qualified to help the children of Israel do what they were supposed to do. God chose Peter. Remember Peter? An uneducated fisherman to lead like the church. <laughs> I was amazed. God chose Paul. Paul wrote the three quarters of the New Testament, and not the least of which is the greatest missionary of all time. He, Paul, by the way, was the one who was the, he was the lynchman. He was killing Christians, or at least messing with their lives a lot. Sometimes I wonder if God in his picking abilities was just a little off. Like, why didn't he pick the smart guy, the fast guy? Why didn't he pick the most educated guy, a gal? Why, why didn't he pick the, 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 the girl with the most whatever? But he always seemed to pick the ones who were on the outskirts of life. Aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad he picks normal people to do extraordinary things? Aren't you glad that he just finds normal, everyday people like you and me and says, I choose you. Even though we're out in the middle of the field picking daisies, not interested in the game whatsoever, he says, I choose you. I love the fact that he's a better picker than we are. We're the kinds of pickers who would pick the people who look the part or smell the part or sing the right words or say all the right things. And God seems to be the picker who picks because of the heart. Not the outside. I love what this says in 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't make decisions the way you do. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man, over and over again, we see how God chose with a whole different set of circumstances and reasons than we do. This morning, we're starting a series called Hark, Hark. It's a three-week series as we build up towards Christmas. The word hark is actually a, a word that was used for somebody who was a hunter. A hunter who would be out with his hound dogs, either hunting a fox or birds or whatever it was. They would be out there 
a hunter would shoot the whatever it was that fell or the, the fox that took off, and he would yell at his hound dogs, Hark! Hark! And what hark meant was for the hound dogs to take off and find the scent of that thing that they were supposed to retrieve. Hark was a word that was used to, to tell them to go get the scent and hang on to it. Hark was also used when the dogs would go off the trail. And they would go off the trail into their own little things. And the, the hunter would yell again, hark, which meant get back to the trail that you were supposed to be on. How many of you know you and I every now and again need to hear the hark in our life because we, well, we wearily walk off the trail and do what we want to do. I got a funny feeling that God in this season right now is just shouting at the top of his lungs to the church, hark, get back at it. Hark, go for it. Hark, don't forget the scent that you once started to pursue. You open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I want to pray with you. God, thanks for your grace. Thank you that we have an opportunity to hear what you have to say. Lord, we need you so much. Thank you for your grace when we get off the trail. Uh, we love you and need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says this. This is two words, that night. That night, what I'm talking about is the birth of Christ, night. It says, that night, some shepherds were in the fields outside the village, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and in the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terribly frightened. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, behold, or hark, the angels say, I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you'll recognize him. You'll find a baby lying in a manger, wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. Suddenly an angel, joined by a vast host of other angels, the armies of heaven began praising God, singing glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to all to whom God's favor rests. Verse 15, Then the angels returned to heaven, and the shepherds said to each other, Come on, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this wonderful thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now, we, many of you have heard this story since you were really young. You've heard it in story form. Maybe you've seen it in uh, movie form, cartoon. I don't know. You saw it. We, we're familiar. Most of us are familiar with this story of this birth of Jesus showing up and these shepherds guarding their flocks of sheep. I went back and studied some old notes that I had had from a couple of years back when I talked about the shepherds, and God just began to open my heart towards looking back and remembering some of the, the, the hark that happened in that moment. I think there's something for each of us today as we listen to what God's saying to us today. I think that there's a, there's a hearkening back to getting back on track. There's a hearkening that God has of each of our hearts that he's, that he's either whispering to you or shouting loud, saying, get back on the road. Hark, come back to, to, to the pursuit of this Savior that you once ran hard after. As I read this story, I'm, I'm brought to just this couple of questions. You know, why, why would God appear in, uh, why would he send angels to show up and speak to shepherds? Ever wonder that? 
Sometimes I, I read my Bible and I have to really force myself backwards to say, God, what were you thinking? Or what was this about? You know, why would you pick Gideon or Paul or Peter? What were you thinking about this whole thing? Like, what was going on in your mind? Sometimes I do that because I want to, I kind of want to really get into the heart of God as to what was going on and what were you thinking? Because I think that we begin to see a, a more rounded version of God's intent. And oftentimes it shows us his really heart's passion for us. Why didn't God show up to a bunch of the rulers in the Roman Empire with angels above? Wouldn't that have been great if he just would have lit up the skies of Rome and just went, the angels, bah, 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 unto us, a savior, is, a savior is born, bah, 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 it's in the city of David, go see him, Herod. I mean, it just would have been awesome, right? It would have solved a bunch of problems. It just would have saved a bunch of grief. It's funny, how, why, why wouldn't God show up to a bunch of the religious leaders of the time? Just so the whole, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the mean guys that convicted Jesus of, of whatever it was, blasphemy, and ended up killing him. At some point, you, you wonder, like, what if you would have showed up to the Sanhedrin and, bum, bum, unto us, a Savior is born, a Son is given. It seemed like that would just save a lot of grief, wouldn't it? Like, why would God choose shepherds? I, I love, you know what I love? I love the fact that God chose the lowliest of the low. I love the fact that God just told, chose normal people. I go back to God being a good picker or a bad picker, but, but I feel like I think he chose good in this instance. I think God chose great. There's this, this idea of him picking shepherds seems so outlandish to us. It just seems silly. Like, why would he pick shepherds? What influence did they have? What, what would shepherds have out guarding their flocks of sheep? They were, by the way, shepherds were considered dirty. Right? And if you know anything about the Jewish system at all, Jewish people were, they, they were really freaked out about cleanliness. I mean, they were like, they, they wanted to be ceremonially clean. They wanted to be clean before they ate. I mean, they're just super big about cleanliness. And, and it's funny because these shepherds were out, they, they were literally the, the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder. <laughs> uh, they, they weren't seen as much, but necessary. People viewed them as a necessary thing. We, we want you to, to, to watch the sheep, but we don't want you to come too close to us. Shepherds kind of had that, 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 that weird feel. They, 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 well, they stinketh. They were no fun to be around because they smelt like sheep. Hmm. I did say sheep. I saw that. Some of you are slow. Bethlehem. It says they were out in the fields near Bethlehem. Bethlehem, uh, they, they were, the city of Bethlehem was interesting because Bethlehem was known as the city of bread. I think it's amazing to me when I look back in history at how, um, remember Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth, how it says Naomi and uh, Ruth, uh, before that there were Elkanah and whatever, I forget her wife's name, but those people ended up going, they left Bethlehem to go to uh, the, to Moab to find wives and land because there was, the Bible says, a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was called the house of bread. Bethlehem itself, quite frankly, was built upon an enormous aquifer. In fact, Bethlehem, for Bethlehem to have a famine was kind of crazy because the, there were, it was really a lush place. Today, it's the same. There's, there's water down there under the ground. And so, quite frankly, when even in that time of the Old Testament, when they left because there was a famine in the land, I don't think it was a famine because of the uh, weather. I think it was a famine because the enemy showed up in a big way. There has always been an attack on Bethlehem. There's always been a craziness about Bethlehem because Jesus said in the book of, or God said in Micah chapter 2, a long time before that, that there was going to be a Savior born in Bethlehem. 
amazing to me as I look at history and see this going on. Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. Bethlehem was about five and a half miles away from Jerusalem. It's interesting to me as I look about this, that around the fields of Bethlehem, there were lots of land to graze. Now there's this, uh, there's this book that Jewish people would use called the Mishnah. Everybody say Mishnah. The Mishnah, I'll read this way that it says it. The Mishnah is a collection of documents of recorded oral traditions that govern the lives of Jewish people during the period of the Pharisees. As such, an understanding of the Mishnah gives us insight into Jewish people, how they live their lives during the time of Christ. So it's really important for us to look at these kind of other documents, extra biblical documents, maybe historical documents, to be able to look and see like, oh, what was going on during that time? Josephus was a historian. There's just different people. This is not the word of God. The Mishnah was not the word of God. The Mishnah, quite frankly, exposed us to us as how those people lived. Right? They exposed us to some of the things that were important to them. So the Mishnah would talk about, uh, the, the Bible would say not to work on the Sabbath, but the Mishnah would say things like, and this is what that means. Sometimes it would go a little overboard. You know, working on the Sabbath meant don't work on the Sabbath. To them, if you spit on the ground, your spit stirred up the dust, your dust stirring up looked like tilling the soil, therefore don't spit on the Sabbath. I mean, it just got a little ridiculous. Don't walk on the Sabbath. Don't do any, I mean, all the craziness. But the Mishnah exposed us to how the Jewish mindset was even interpreting Scripture. So, so looking at the Mishnah at the time, it, makes us kinda, it helps us kind of see historically what these guys were going about. One of the regulations that were written in the Mishnah expressly forbids, get this, expressly forbids the keeping of flocks in the nation of Israel, except out in the wilderness of Israel, like Bethlehem. Interesting. I think it's amazing to me as I think about some of the historicity of what was going on here. Get this. Sheep lived outside the confines of the city. Now, keep in mind, <clears throat> during this time frame, the temple uh, was built. The temple uh, would offer David, just years before that, David had said he wanted to offer sacrifices as a pleasing aroma to God. In fact, David said, I want to offer two sacrifices every single day of the year, morning and night. Every single day of the year, kill a, sp a spotless lamb in the morning and in the evening, 365 days a year. Translation, seven, 730 some odd sheep every year were just killed as a sacrifice pleasing aroma to God. And, and get this, and even more than that, during the time of even David, so way back, way back in David's time, there, were, there was a census taken, and there was 1.3 million men in the, city, or in the city around that time in Jerusalem. Get this. The population was probably estimated at around 5 million people with women and children. 5 million people. That would seem, though, every family was required to bring a spotless lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. So every year at Passover, every family was to make a trek to Jerusalem and bring a spotless lamb to be sacrificed. That would mean on one given day, there were 250,000 lambs sacrificed. What a mess! And by the way, I told you that the city of Bethlehem was built on an aquifer, just this incredible, huge, large water body underneath. You know, I think it's amazing how God provided. But there were so many lambs sacrificed at the temple on that Passover that it actually contaminated the cisterns beneath the temple because there was so much blood flowing through the city. I'm always amazed at this picture of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb for us and how messy that was. 
The Bible says that Jesus was our sacrificial lamb, and I think about all the lambs that were sacrificed. By the way, it wasn't necessarily God's requirement that all this blood was being crazy just everywhere, but there was this moment where God was saying, listen, I want you to see the mess. I want you to see the mess and the bloody mess that your sin is, 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 is providing and what it's going to take for that to happen. The Bible said Jesus was the sacrifice once for all to remove our sin. But I think sometimes I think God wanted to show us the price, the amazing amount of blood to be shed. Could you imagine that? Here's the question. Where did all those lambs come from? Where did all those lambs come from? Now, they could have carried a lamb from Galilee. They could have done that. And sometimes they did. I think that was the intent from God was to bring a lamb that they would, uh, and a little lamb. It wasn't like, because a lamb is called the lamb when it's little in its first year. I think outside its first year, it's called a sheep, right? So uh, a ewe would produce a lamb. For the first year, it'd be a lamb. They would carry the lamb on their necks at times when they were traveling along distances. It was like a pet to them. And when they got there for the Passover, they would sacrifice that lamb. And could you imagine the heart-wrenching it would be for the little people in your family? Or maybe even you? People began to see that our sin costs us something. Anyway, the whole story. A lot of these lambs didn't necessarily always come from other places. Sometimes these lambs were purchased at a place where lambs were, were, were being raised up as pure and spotless. One of the places they could do that at, well, the place they could do that at was, was a city called Bethlehem. They could go to Bethlehem because Bethlehem was also known as the, the, the place where sheep are born. <laughs> Isn't that amazing to you? Listen to this. The, Bethlehem was the place where sheep were born. The shepherds that were guarding those sheep, this is what I found, reading some of the Mishnah, was this. Those shepherds, <laughs> excuse me, were actually called priestly shepherds. They were shepherds. They, they weren't normal shepherds. They had to have some uh, familiarity with Jewish law and custom because they needed to understand the cleanliness of what a spotless lamb was. Now, spotless lamb meant that there needed to be a lamb that didn't have any uh, black spots or brown spots. It just had to be pure and white. Anytime it had a blemish, it was, it was put aside to, to be used for other purposes, perhaps. But a spotless lamb if, if a lamb, when lambs were born, they would come out kicking and flailing like every lamb would. And, and they, they would quickly have to gather the lamb so it wouldn't cut himself or whatever, because then it would have a scar and it would be blemished and they couldn't use it for the sacrifice. So these, let me tell you, these shepherds were so aware of what was going on with these sheep that were going to either be sacrificed daily or on this massive sacrifice during the Passover. It, it changed my perspective on shepherds. I mean, shepherds were definitely the lower class, but these shepherds were, were a little different. These shepherds had a, a heart for God. These shepherds were, well, let me put it this way. I think, honestly, as I've been reading some of this history, that King David, before he was King David, David was just the shepherd boy. By the way, David was born in a city called Bethlehem. I think David was a priestly shepherd. I got a funny feeling that David was a priestly shepherd who overseen sheep and fell in love with God, and sat out there singing worship songs unto Jesus, and said uh, things like, oh God, uh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I pursue you as the deer pants for the water, as my soul longs after you. And you get this impression. Because before this moment, I always thought David was out there playing his harp, watching sheep, looking for lions and tigers and bears. And I was like, kind of a weird kid. You know, but you know what? He wasn't a weird kid. Because those shepherds were trained to protect those sheep, because those sheep were super valuable. Those sheep were set apart for something different. Isn't it amazing to you how God, at the time of Jesus' birth, brought him, brought the family, Mary and Joseph, 
to the city of Bethlehem, and there was no room in the inn. I'll level with you. I had the hardest time with that for the longest time. They kept on thinking, God of details? God prepares everything? God sets the stars in the sky at the right time so that the star and the angel, all those people, the, the, the wise men would show up. How did you forget to make like reservations? Like I just always think, like, how'd that happen? And here's the reason why. I think, honestly, he didn't make reservations because they weren't supposed to have the baby inside the city. They were supposed to have the baby, they were supposed to have baby Jesus in the city's outskirts. I was raised up in a town called Enumclaw, right? Enumclaw had a town center, but then outside the outskirts, you're still in town, even though you're 10 miles out of town. You're still, you're still in the city. That was the same way with this group of people. These shepherds were in Bethlehem, but they were just on the outskirts of town. In fact, it's interesting to me. They were out at a place, these shepherds were out at a place, Micah chapter 4 talks about it, at a place called the Tower of the Flock. Actually, in Hebrew, it's called Igdal, or it's called uh, Migdal Idar. Migdal Idar. It's the Tower of the Flock. Google it. I'm telling you, there's something about it. The Tower of the Flock. This was just a, a tower that sat out there. In fact, it was probably there from centuries before when battles would go on because this, long, this large tower that sat out in the middle of a, a sheep field was actually used by the shepherds to look out far and wide to see if there was trouble coming. And get this. Below in the bottom part of the Migdal Idar, this tower... The shepherds used it as a sheep birthing center. They actually uh, brought the ewes in to deliver babies. Why? Because the sheep had to be inspected to make sure there was no spot or blemish. The sheep had to be protected so that they wouldn't fall out on the ground and scratch themselves on a rock or something. It's amazing to me, right? In fact, get this. When a sheep was born, it was usually brought in, the ewe was brought into the tower this place. And, and so here's the thing. The, the sheep would come out flailing and kicking and doing all the things that a baby would do when it would be born like that. And, and get this, to, to calm the sheep down, they would, they would put the sheep on its back. And to get it from kicking itself and kicking all over the place, the shepherds would wrap the baby sheep, the lamb, in swaddling cloths. And, and, and so they could look at it and inspect it. Then they would take the, the wrapped sheep in swaddling cloths and they would lay it in a manger so that they could inspect it. Now, a manger that you and I know of is the wooden manger. You know, it looks like this with the sticks up. Can I tell you, if you've been to the Middle East at all, there is something that there's plenty of, one of which is not wood. There's not a lot of wood there. In fact, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, the wood had to be floated down on a barge from Lebanon to come down. Remember the cedars of Lebanon that floated down the river to them? So would they, you know what there's a plethora of in, in Jerusalem? Rocks, like a lot of rocks, like rocks everywhere you go. So a manger was usually a rock that was hewn out, and they could put water in, they could put hay or straw, whatever in it. They would take these lambs, and they would put it on an altar that was actually a manger. Isn't it amazing how Jesus, when he was born, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger. I'm just amazed when I think about the angels hearkening unto these shepherds. Here's the one thing I always wondered. How come the angels didn't say, hey, by the way, he's over on first, your first street or second avenue. Why didn't the angels shoot up a, a flare to say it's over there? You know, we watch the cartoons and we think, well, the shepherds followed the star. The star was over Bethlehem. They were in Bethlehem. Where could they go? Here's where every shepherd who was, who was one of the priestly shepherds knew where to go. They knew where the manger was because the manger was where the baby lambs were inspected. So when the angel said, go to the manger, you know where they went? To the manger. 
My guess, in the tower of the flock. And they went there and they, they saw Mary laying Jesus, unbeknownst to her, swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. I can imagine these shepherds were like, he's the perfect lamb of God. He's the one. That's why the Bible says the shepherds fell on their knees and worshiped. Oh, God's a good picker. I'm telling you, he knew exactly what he was doing. He prepared these shepherds. He prepared them for this passion to move out and to see from all eternity. Well, they knew the book of Micah, man, because they knew the law. They knew what was coming in this, this migdal eater, this tower of the flock. I, I, again, this is, all, this is stuff that I, in my heart believed to be true as I'm watching some of this stuff historically as to why God would have chosen shepherds to do that thing were they just this random group of shepherds out in the middle of a field somewhere? I don't think so. I think there were definitely more chosen. And God had been preparing these shepherds to come and see this Savior to be born. He's the God of details. He's a God that knows everything. Sometimes I think about this story as I, as I did this last week. I, I quite literally sat back in my chair, almost tears coming down my face, with this idea of like, What? Like all of these things, and I wasn't a coincidence at all. It was like God's divine plan saying, look at the details that I thought for and thought through for you. And I wonder sometimes in my own life or in our lives are the places that we think God is so far away and unaware of our troubles and struggles. And God doesn't seem to care. God doesn't seem to know. God doesn't seem to be bothered by our troubles. And I find myself saying, God... Not only did you know about every detail of the birth of Christ and where and who and what and when and how, but you know each and every detail of each of our lives. The good, the bad, the ugly, the, 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 the great, the victories, the failures, the struggles, the shame. God knows every detail and every one of those. He says, listen, I'm here for you and I'll walk with you. I believe God is saying today, hark, get back on track. Hearken back to the truth that you know to be true. As I was thinking through this whole story, it got me wondering, what are the places in our lives that God is hearkening us back to? What are the places in each of our lives that God is hearkening us back to? I wrote down a couple of things. What is God calling you back to the original scent of? I, I wrote this. I think God's hearkening us back to first love. Hearkening us back to first love. That's kind of a weird way. It's kind of an incomplete sentence. God's hearkening us back to first love. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter 2 says this. I know all the things that you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't care, that you don't, I'm sorry, I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say that they are apostles but are not, and you have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you, he says. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen from first love. Turn back to me and work as you did at first. If you don't, I will come and remove the lampstand from its place among the churches. That's scary. I'll level with you. I'm not exactly sure what the lampstand means. But you do the math. There's a part of it that makes me stop and think, God, have I, fallen from, have I fallen from my first love? I'm not talking about your first attraction or your first, your first emotion that pattered in your heart when you saw that person that you were going to marry or fall in love with. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the first love that you have with Christ. That first notion that you realized, I can too have a hope. 
I can have a hope that's beyond this world. I can have a hope that will extend into eternity. That first love. That first love that says there is a guarantee of tomorrow. And this hope that you have for tomorrow is far greater than anything you could ever imagine. That, that, that first love that you experienced, the first funeral you went to, and you realize that that person that you know and love is, has entered into that eternity with Jesus. Or you just said, I can't wait to be there with them. See, I wonder sometimes if we have forgotten our first love, that first love, and not an emotional love. I'm talking about a decision, a love that says I sit down each morning and read my Bible, not because I have to. I just want to challenge some of you. If you've, if you've not sat down to journal or to write a letter to God or to tell him what you mean or turn off the radio or the TV and sit down and say, God, I just want to tell you I need you today and relight the flame of your first love. And bring back to that moment where you say, God, I desperately need you. Because outside the context of him, we're just a bunch of people trying to run around and, and get what we can get from other people that that's falls short of what God wants to give from, to us. We try to get the love and the acceptance and the need from other people. And God's saying, listen, you need to love them, but really what you need is me. And I think sometimes we, God's calling us, he's hearkening us back to first love. Hearkening us back to first love. Hmm. Number two, what's God hearkening us back to? I wrote God's hearkening us back to forgiveness. Hearkening us back to forgiveness. James 5.19 says this. My dear brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back again, you could be sure that the one who brings that person back will save that sinner from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. I don't know when was the last time you thought about the forgiveness of your own sin. In the amount, I, I just, I really wanted to paint the picture of how, how much our salvation cost. I mean, we really don't understand what that was like in that, in, in that, that first century when, when blood was flowing and it was, it was, it was every, every drop of blood that flowed down and, and contaminated the cistern beneath the temple. Every ounce of it was like this, this picture of the need for our own sin to be removed. It was just this gushing blood that would purify. And we're like, God, I am such a wretched person in my own decisions, in my own thought life. God, how desperately I need forgiveness. If you lean too, side on one, too hard on one side of the ledger, you'll find yourself going into a depression. But the moment you finally say to yourself, like, God, I am so desperate in need of your forgiveness, and you begin to see that and see, like, God, you love me enough to forgive me of my sin. Let me tell you this. You want to hearken back to getting back on that trail that you once knew and had? You be listening to what God's saying. Come back to forgiveness. And what about the forgiveness that God wants us to give others? Remember the Bible in God's sneaky sort of way says, listen, if you don't forgive, then you can't be forgiven. That always reminds me, it always makes, me, always makes God almost sound like there's a little bit of a neener neener in him. If you don't, I won't. And can I tell you, it's nothing like that at all. God, God's ability to say to you, I'll forgive you, but I can't forgive you if you don't forgive another, has nothing to do with God saying, if you don't, I won't. It has everything to do with the positioning of our hearts. When we, here's the deal. It's as if God says, listen, I'll, your whole life is, is this whole thing right here. And I will forgive 100% of your sin, all from the beginning to the very end of your life. 
And then what we do is we say, God, uh, somebody hurt me. And so what we do is we say, God, I, I, can, I want to be just like you and walk in the freedom to forgive others. But the moment that we say to ourselves, God, I can't forgive him because he hurt me badly when I was a child or she hurt me badly when I was whatever it was. And, and we live in this moment. Then what we do is we say to ourselves, we say, God, I can't forgive. And we put ourselves above God's forgiveness. Quite literally, what we do is we take ourselves out of the grace we put ourselves and we say, I'm God. I won't forgive. And God's saying, if you want to put yourself into the place of being God, I can't do anything for you. Forgive and get back under my grace. That's from the New Lance translation. I'm just telling you, that's exactly what it is. God's saying, listen, don't remove yourself from that moment of my grace. By walking in unforgiveness. Listen, unforgiveness is the hardest thing you will ever do. The hardest thing you'll ever do is to walk in forgiveness of that person that hurt you. But remember, forgiveness doesn't set, doesn't set them free. Forgiveness sets you free. Forgiveness takes the shackles off of your legs. Because you feel like if I forgive him or if I give her, then in that moment they get to walk away scot-free and as if there's nothing happening. No, God will deal with them. You don't have to be God. You can get yourself back underneath God's grace and say, God, I'll live in this. And we hearken back to forgiveness. We realize that God's saying, we need to forgive. What does that mean? That we have to walk around and befriend that person who hurt me? No, man, have some boundaries. You don't have to become friends. You don't have to even celebrate Christmas with them. You can say to yourself like, hey, that ain't my thing. It just hurts too badly. I don't know how you play that out in your life. I'm just saying, there's some people in my life who've hurt me that I've decided I don't have, they're, they're not friends in my Facebook world. Come on, I've decided that those people hurt me and I won't allow them to hurt me anymore because I don't need to. I have forgiven them, but I'm not going to befriend them. Remember, forgiveness doesn't mean forgetness. You may still remember. It still may hurt, but forgiveness means I, I, will, I will set that person go to you, Jesus, while I set myself free. Hearken back to forgiveness. And number three, I think God's telling us to hearken back to the joy of our salvation. Hearken back to the joy of our salvation. Psalm 51, 12 says this, God, restore me again to the joy of my salvation. I just imagine as David was out in that sheep field near Migdal Edar, as he was out there shepherding those sheep who would be sacrificed, and he says, God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I just wonder what it was like when he, when he had messed up and crossed the line with Bathsheba, and he's in that moment where he's like, God, I've walked in such tremendous rebellion towards you. Lord, forgive me. I love this whole psalm when he just says, God, restore unto me the joy. Maybe today you need to come clean before Jesus. And maybe you've had your Bathsheba moment. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Whatever that means, whether it's exactly the same or whether it's something similar, and you've walked away from the heart of what you know to be true. And God's saying, listen, return, hark back to the scent of what you know to be true. That God would restore unto you the joy of his salvation. That you may walk before him in the light of life. You join me as we pray this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. I mean that so much. Lord, if historically the things that we read this morning are true, then God, let them sink in deep. I think it's true about that tower. I think it's true about those shepherds. God, more than anything, I know what is true is that you want us to be hearkened back to truth. So God, I pray that we would receive that word. As you're here today, just respond to God. 
Maybe he's calling you back to hearkening to the joy of your salvation. Maybe he's hearkening you back to the place of forgiveness. Maybe this morning he's hearkening you back to first love. Whatever it is, I pray that you would just respond to him right now. God, forgive me. I've missed you. Lord, I've been singing all the right words and raised my hands at the right time, and my heart has been so far from you. Go ahead, just you and him. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Forgive me. Maybe you just need to come clean and say, God, forgive me. I've been doing it my way far too long. I want to hearken back to the truth. Maybe you're here for the very first time. You're realizing you've never been brought to the scent of following hard after Jesus. In other words, you've never become a Christian. And today you're saying, man, this, this is for real. I need this. That's you just say, Jesus, you got me. I give. I surrender my life to you. And watch God begin to give you a scent you can run hard after. Go ahead. Just say, Jesus, I give you me.